Welcome to the Tennessee on Supply Chain Management podcast. Listen in as co-hosts Ted Stank and Tom Goldsby take a leap onto the ships of supply chain, crowd surf into the long lines of meeting holiday demand, and wade into the depths of warehouse inventory buildup. They'll cover all the relevant and current topics blocking the canal of your minds and discuss industry issues that keep you up at night. If you enjoyed the show, download and subscribe to Tennessee on Supply Chain Management, wherever you listen to podcasts. Without further ado, let's begin our show, where you'll hear what you'd least expect from the people you want to hear it from the most. Our co-hosts, Ted and Tom. Hello and welcome to another edition of Tennessee on Supply Chain Management. I'm your co-host, Tom Goldsby, and delighted to be joined, as always, by my good friend and colleague, Professor Ted Stank. Hello, Ted. Happy New Year to you. Hey, Thomas. Happy New Year. Welcome, everyone, to our first podcast of 2023. It's great to be back together for sure. And hey, we survived 2022, so that's worthy of celebration and certainly a lot in store for our podcast today. And let me just quickly offer a little uh, agenda of what we're going to try to cover today. It's an action-packed session in store for you. So we're going to offer a bit of a recap, looking back particularly at the uh, recently closed holiday season and maybe evaluate how our supply chains held up to the challenge of meeting those holiday demands. We also want to look forward a bit, offer some bold predictions of what could be in store for us in business supply chains, and perhaps even in life uh, for 2023. And then we're going to be delighted to bring in our good friend and colleague, Kate Vitasic, who is a faculty member here at UT uh, and also the maven of vested outsourcing. If you're not familiar with vested outsourcing, hey, give us just a little bit of time today and you'll become a seasoned pro by the end of this session. But Ted, again, I hope you had a great holiday. As you know, it, it was pretty adventuresome for me and my family as we've taken residence at the Stank household in Knoxville, Tennessee. So just a little bit of backstory there. Like so many other folks, we had sub-freezing temperatures that hit us here in the Mid-South, here on Rocky Top. And we had a, a line burst, fortunately, did not affect our condo unit itself, but did take our elevator out of service. And I just had another knee surgery last month and getting around in stairwells is not so cool. So Ted was so generous to open his doors and uh, we've been taking residence, I think, about 10 days now. Uh, I guess uh, we'll know as soon as we get your invoice just how many days we've been at the Stank uh, residence there. Oh, yeah. We've got a good accounting system, Tom. We'll, we'll make sure that we <laughs> capture all that. I have to get back first and check what the levels are on my liquor cabinet. Did, are, are you one of those people that marks the lines of where it was when you left? Because we're in trouble if you're keeping that close tab. Yeah, that, I established that habit when I had three teenage sons that living at home. So uh, Fair enough. No, I think you're safe. I stopped doing that. They moved out of the house a long time ago, so you're not a worry for that. But hey, you foreshadowed something that I do want to talk about later, which is an infrastructure issue. It's not just in the Goldsby luxury towers. Our house also had some frozen pipes. I think across the South, we saw the results of brittle infrastructure. And that bodes not very well for the future because as we have these changing weather patterns, think that we're going to have to invest some money in infrastructure that relates to supply chain management. No, absolutely. Uh, you know, just a big, I guess, show and tell going on, at, on on the banks of the mighty Ohio River just a few days ago where the president was joined with a bilateral coalition of folks. I think the governor of, of Ohio, as well as Kentucky and senators with both states there, uh, heralding a bridge that I've crossed many, many times in my life. And I know you have as well there 
crossing uh, back and forth between Kentucky and Ohio. I don't know about you. I always hold my breath going over that bridge. So maybe what, uh, three to five years from now, maybe we'll actually be able to cross that uh, that river and in comfort. Yeah, when it comes to road and bridge construction, I think that if you go to the outer limits of that five to six years, maybe. Yeah, probably so. Probably more realistic. So, hey, getting back to our our topics here about holiday performance, I think one of the good things heading into 2023 is that U.S. consumers continue to spend. Holiday shopping was up 8% year over year. We just saw some jobs outlooks, and I think that one of the good news elements going into this year from an economic standpoint is that consumer spending remains pretty stout. Americans still have a lot of savings and we're spending on things that we needed, maybe things that we couldn't get during the worst depths of COVID. What's your take on our holiday scenario? Yeah, it seemed to be a very robust gift-giving season. Unfortunately, the shelves were sufficiently stocked. It seemed like retailers got well ahead of the problem. You know, They were concerned about port issues and rail strikes and these sort of things and tried to get ahead. And we were hearing about how the warehouses were just busting at the seams even going back to summer throughout the fall. And so it seems like they were a little more sure to hit the mark. And in fact, their balance sheets were a little heavy with inventory. And I think they were feeling some strain. And I think that it's still going to be a good time to be catching some good deals on a lot of stuff that was overstocked through the holiday. But I think by and large, yeah, there were still some issues with Chinese supply chains and COVID outbreaks and such that have supply chains still a little bit suboptimal in some ways, but it seems like they met the mark in terms of inventory this year. Yeah, I really got to give a shout out to our supply chain practitioner colleagues. We prepared for this holiday season, taking into account the delays that we'd seen the past couple of years. A lot of folks in the media got all alarmed at the high levels of inventory and the fact that in the build up to holiday season, we weren't seeing the massive logistics movements that we're used to seeing um, in the October, November timeframe. But I think it was all attempt to be prepared for this holiday season with whatever might happen from a delay and port congestion standpoint. I checked the inventory to sales ratio just before this podcast and we're at 1.22 in October. Those are the latest numbers that are out, but that remained pretty steady over the last several months. So I think that's a pretty healthy number. Um, Let's see what kind of sales we have this month. But still, I think we came through the holidays again with a great tribute to supply chain managers. Yeah, those inventory to sales ratio numbers are more on par with where we've seen. We're starting to hear more and more comparisons to the pre-COVID time period. I know that we swore we weren't going to do that, but it is a a fairly ready comparison and things are starting to normalize a bit. Uh, We're continuing to see a lot of interest, obviously, in living life as we did pre-COVID. But I'm going to go back to that expression uh, that our supply chains are going to be moving in lockstep with COVID. And and of course, now China seems to have done a 180 on the COVID lockdown situation. Of course, that means they've told their citizenry that they can freely travel around the world. That's caused some alarm here in the United States and Europe and other places. But it seems like it's still impacting the source of so many supply chains. While we do have a lot of inventory now, there's there's still the chance it could be disrupted moving forward. Yeah, I'm holding my breath ever since. You know, that was an interesting um, late fall, early winter with protests in Iran, protests in China. Um, you know, we see protests in lots of places, Peru. But in China, with the impact that it had of reversing the zero COVID policy, and they went from, as you said, 180 degree turn. And I held my breath and I'm still holding my breath because 
if they have what we're starting to see as the run-up of COVID infections that would be expected once you had a population of 1.4 billion that had been trying to seal it off wherever it occurred and then all of a sudden saying, okay, all bets are off, let's go out and party in the streets. What's that impact going to be on labor and manufacturing, port congestion, et cetera? And I'm already reading reports that um, up and down the Chinese East Coast, there's port congestion, boxes starting to stack up. So are we going to see the kind of congestion that we saw early in COVID when China shut those ports down because of their zero COVID policy? Now they're going to get shut down because no one's coming to work because they're sick. That's one of the things that scares me heading into the next month or two. And then Lunar New Year shows the same kind of retail movement that it usually does that would exacerbate that problem. Yeah. On an up note, though, on our shores, uh, it seems like the backlog of ships, certainly West Coast. And I think also now on the East Coast and Gulf Coast, we're seeing that backlog of ships getting cleared out. And it seems as though processing is, is moving pretty well. We've not had you know, work stoppages and disruptions that we might have uh, anticipated uh, in fall and late in the year. And so, so that's very encouraging. But hey, let's look forward to 23. And a little bit of what we've already shared is perhaps foreboding of what could be in store. But Ted, before we started recording, you, you tried to walk me back. I, I got to share with the audience. You said, hey, maybe we don't go with big, bold predictions. I'm going to force the issue. Let's bring it forward, Professor Stank. Uh, the world wants to know, what does 2023 have in store? And just how big and bold are you willing to go? Well, so my first big bold one is that the Georgia Bulldogs will be the first two-time national champion since Alabama. Says the Georgia alum. So that's my first big bold prediction, okay? All right, all right. My second one is that, you know, Tom, I'm not an economist. We've joked about this before. I have stated Holiday Inn Express, and I do hang out with Marianne Wanamaker, for all of you who know our friend Marianne Wanamaker. I am somewhat bullish as well. I think that we will see moderation in GDP growth, maybe even to the point of stagnation, but not necessarily recession. Again, I think consumer confidence remains relatively high and people are spending. People have jobs and are employed. I mean, there's some dark clouds on that horizon, right, with all the tech announcements this week about Amazon laying off 18,000 and Salesforce laying off 10% of their workforce. So we got to keep an eye on that. But I think a lot of people might argue that those industries were a bit hefty coming into this year anyway. There are clouds on the horizon. There's no doubt about it. Auto sales are down. We look at the logistics managers index that our friend Dale Rogers at Arizona State runs. Logistics managers index is showing um, slight contraction. If a 50 index is kind of steady state, it's at 48.1, I think, which shows a slight contraction. Imports and exports uh, are down somewhat. But again, is that because we're at a holiday season? Is that because of just general slowdown? We needed demand to slow down from where it was. Uh, That's probably what it was going to take to clear up a lot of the supply chain backlogs. Inflation is still in the 7% range. So we have some room to, to go there. I think the question to me is how aggressive is the Fed going to be and how do people making company investment decisions about growth and new factories and hiring people, how do they react to that more expensive money source? 
So I talked a lot. I'm not sure I made any big, bold predictions other than the Georgia one. So I'm going to throw it back to you, Tom. What are your big, bold predictions? Well, I'm not going to throw cold water on anything you offered there. I I think you're you're pretty spot on. I think we're pretty much aligned uh, in viewpoints. And I agree that the notion of stagflation, you know, I think think it's going to be very slow growth, if any, probably uh, as a general economy. And I also do think there's going to be elements of hit or miss, kind of hot or cold. I think there are going to be some segments of the economy that are still going to be kind of running red hot and others that are probably going to be the, the yin to that yang, if you will. But I think in total, I think our economy is in such good footing. What we just saw new jobs numbers come out for December, which continue to prove very robust employment. And our friend Bill Simon, former CEO of Walmart, said, hey, we've never had a zero employment or low employment period of recession. And so... Yeah, I, I continue to be quite bullish, and, and I really look to the consumer more than any other stage of the supply chain, and I think consumption continues to be hot. We've whetted the appetite these last couple of years. Yes, people had a lot of extra money maybe in their pockets, maybe not so much now, but even if it means going into debt, taking a little credit, I think they're going to be willing to do it, to go out and travel, see the world, whatever they want, You know, their heart's content might bring. I just think that appetite is still out there. So if spenders going to spend, I, I think uh, our economy is OK, even if, you know, maybe they continue to spend in, in different ways. It's, it's going to be an interesting dynamic. So I have another good one. I predict that we will seat a Congress sometime in 2023. <laughs> that is bold. I'm not sure when. Well, again, just to timestamp this a little bit, we're on day four, and maybe there's proven to be a little bit of a break. I think that we can also continue to bank on weather issues that will maybe no longer surprise us because we're getting used to it. You know, there was generational snow in Buffalo, right? I think they can handle snow. Wasn't it in December that they moved a Buffalo Bills game to Detroit because they had five feet of snow? And that wasn't generational. So I can't imagine what this last snowfall was like that killed dozens of people. We're still so early in this winter season as well. So who knows what's going the South have another freeze. If you remember last winter, we had the freeze in Texas that really impacted our ability to refine oil and energy prices. That's going to continue. And I think, again, in supply chain management, we have come to accept that these kinds of things are going to happen at very repetitive rates. And so we need to just try to make ourselves more resilient to recovering when they do happen. Well, I think the, the picture we're painting is one of continued chaos, to some extent, large and small. And, and hey, as I'm experiencing chaos of being out of my home, as I have been the better part of these last two weeks, I and my family feel so fortunate that we can count on good friends to help us out, which maybe that's a bit of a transition to where we want to bring in our guest today. What do you think, Ted? That is a great point, Tom. I will point out your resilience, by the way, too, because you've got really good technology and you told me you've been able to work with no problem. A quick downturn to Southwest Airlines that hasn't invested in their technology for a long Uh time. And so of all the airlines, they really got caught short with the weather that we had last week. And I'm somebody that just flew Southwest yesterday. So luckily they recovered and I had great flight. Thank you, Southwest. I'm glad it wasn't last week. So Yeah, to your point earlier about our transition to our guest, many years ago, when I first came to Tennessee, I met this force named Kate Vitasic. Kate was working at the time on a uh, University of Tennessee-funded research project with the United States Air Force, looking at how the Air Force could co-opt some of their suppliers into improving the on-time availability of equipment 
they were calling that performance-based logistics. And Kate had the notion coming out of that performance-based logistics research that we could apply that in a lot of public sector environments. What a notion that instead of punishing our best suppliers and the suppliers that we need to create value for our customers, let's co-opt them into creating value for us. And like all great concepts that change the world, it was simple in its understanding, but difficult to implement. And Kate, over the last almost 20 years, has become the absolute maven of what she's called vested, invested outsourcing. Um, she's written a number of books on the topic, and she has overseen it going from concept to reality with a number of implementations with great companies around the world. So with that, Kate, it's great to have you with us. I always love spending time with you. Everything you always have to say is just things that I want to record and write down. Kate Fantastic, the maven of Vested. You told me that once a long time ago. You wanted to be known as the maven of Vested, and I think you are. Um, she's also a faculty fellow in our University of Tennessee Supply Chain Management Group, Global Supply Chain Institute. Kate, welcome. Well, thanks for having me. It's an honor to come back. You know, it's almost full circle coming back, being asked to do research, and now getting to share with the audience here all the cool stuff that we've been working on. And, you know, it's not just working on stuff, but it's when you have impact and companies actually get results. That's what excites me. That's so cool. Again, you've been achieving, advancing this concept, as Ted said, is beautiful in its eloquence, yet remains so challenging for companies to try to figure out how to, to have living arrangements. And I love the expression perhaps you trademark, you know, that we need to move away from what's in it for me to what's in it for we. And again, people can kind of nod their heads and agree that that's a, a worthwhile pursuit, but making it happen is so challenging. But maybe we ought to step back a little bit for those that are not so well-informed about vested outsourcing. Can you explain to the audience a little bit about what vested means? Yeah. So a couple of components here. First and foremost, it's a mindset. And you said it, right? You're moving away from this what's in it for me, us versus them, you know, buyer supplier relationship to a highly collaborative win-win relationship. And it's not just about saying collaboration or saying strategic partner, but truly becoming a strategic partner, truly creating a win-win relational contract with win-win outcome-based economics. And that's why it's so hard. Right. It's real easy to sit around and say strategic partnership. Now you actually have to contract for it. You have to create a pricing model, the economic model that rewards the supplier for it. You have to govern it differently. So it's a mindset. But one of the things I'm most proud about is that it's also a methodology because we, through our research, have unpacked kind of the secret sauce of how to get people to not just say strategic partnership to be, become vested partners. So there are five rules to vested. There's 10 contractual elements. And so by breaking down these concepts that we know through research are proven, how do we teach them through this methodology? So it's a mindset, a methodology. And when you apply the methodology, we would call it a business model because we're moving away from a transactional buy-sell operating system to a win-win outcome-based operating system. So really think of it as a system, an operating system with how you work with your supplier, a business model. And the last thing I like to tell people, it's a movement. 
Because the more people make the shift and the more they see the results, they tell people. And we're so fortunate that companies that are using the vested methodology are very open and public and allow us to write case studies. But the more the case studies are out there, the more people go, all right, well, that's different. But I see that it can be done because BP just did it, right? Lidos, a big, huge government contractor, Dell. You know, so if we see others making the shift, it helps us then make that shift. So mindset, methodology, business model, and a movement. Love it. Eloquent again. Kate, I don't know if you remember this, but many years ago, you were a keynote speaker at one of the industry conferences that I serve as educational advisor to. And you were doing your great pitch on Vested and talking about how to implement Vested. And there was in particular one person that took exception to many of the things that you said. I'm not sure that person recognized that you were somebody that has applied this and was reading too much of you're a UT professor and you know you sit in your ivory tower and you don't know how this applies. How many times do you confront that kind of mentality? Like this is all pie in the sky and it won't work. And has that eased over the years that you've been implementing these? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I tell this story, you know, giving a keynote speech and someone coming up and little, like tapping on my shoulder, you know, really nice theory. It'll never work in practice. And I'm like, I came from the practice. <laughs> right. I work for Microsoft and, and they're a pretty large buyer and they outsource tons of crap. And I've worked for their largest supplier. So having been a buyer and a supplier and seeing what was working, wasn't working, you know, as an academic now, you can look at this kind of hot mess that we've created in, you know, not creating the right structures. So I knew it would work. I knew it. And the research, when you looked at the deals that were the most successful, it was already working. I tell people, I didn't invent anything. I'm just a better teacher. It's saying, here's how you take what works and actually replicate it. And so I'm super excited that so many companies have done vested deals now. You know, we've over 100 organizations that have applied vested and we have case studies. Our BP case study, BP and Jones Lang Assault just came out last month. Dell and Island Health are in Harvard Business Review. And so if you are skeptical, now you don't have to just go, well, it's a nice theory. It's like we can point to these different industries, real companies with real names, with real stories, showing the results. Because the results, I mean, that's where people go, hmm, all right, I can do different if I can get those kind of results. And I have to believe that the past three years has just been an incredible trial by fire, as it has for all supply chains and supply chain relationships can you comment a little bit on what you've witnessed in those organizations that have taken you up on the vested proposition and perhaps how they've weathered the storm? I mean, now, granted, these large companies that you tend to work with, they've got some vested relationships and probably a whole host of non-vested, more transactional relationships as well. But I'd just be curious about how companies have, have weathered the storm with vested arrangements as opposed to not yet implementing in full or more robustly? Yeah, so that's a great question. It's actually one that Harvard Business Review had for us as well, because we'd written a couple articles in HBR and they came back and said, how are these vested deals holding up in the pandemic? And so we did an article for them and we'd gone back because we're kind of zealots at researching and studying these deals and trying to trend them over time. 
And what we found is the companies who'd made the shift to vested, the pandemic wasn't such a freak out because we teach them. And you even said is like, gosh, we're in all this uncertainty. We call it business happens. Business happens. Let's create a flexible contract framework that embraces the fact that business happens. So now we're not fighting each other. Oh, here's what the contract said. You can't do this, right? And so we go into the relationship with a very flexible relational contract, a formal relational contract that says we're going to be partners and we recognize there's a lot of uncertainties. I use this analogy of going to Mount Everest. It's going to snow on Mount Everest. You don't know what's coming. So let's put in the mechanisms to manage the strategic relationship. Instead of buying and selling, and then business happens and it frustrates us, we're going to navigate getting to the top of our Mount Everest together, right? So you're not just my supplier, you're my Serpa, you're my partner. If I don't trust you, I could die on this mountain, right? And so we're really in it together. And that's a whole entirely different mindset. And we had in the HV article... We chose two different examples to talk about. One was a pharmaceutical company with facilities management. You think about it, oh, facilities management, that's just cleaning and dining and catering, right? But under a vested relationship, you're optimizing what is often a billion dollars in spend in corporate real estate and facilities, real estate management, dining. So pandemic hits, all of a sudden, your corporate headquarters are shut down. What do you do with the hundreds of thousands of people often that was in your sub supplier? Oh, sorry, you're screwed, right? Just go lay them off. Well, we can't lay them off because in Europe we have rules that doesn't let us do that. Instead, now with Vesta, you go, hmm, business happened. What are we going to do? Well, they had manufacturing facilities. So they had people working in the cafeterias and they said, well, you know what? Why don't we over service and TLC home meals for all the poor people who are working in manufacturing, our essential workers who are working in R&D on the vaccines. Let's let them have take-home meals. So I'm not going to lay off these people, but our cost structure went down because I don't have to pay for things that we don't need, but I'm going to reorient the people to actually, on a dime, come up with a better way. Well, how do we actually serve the value that we need? For example, the the facilities management people, hmm, facilities are closed. Let's go in and use this time to put in proactive preventive maintenance, retrofit some of the buildings with what we needed because we didn't have to spend money on electricity and all these other stuff because the buildings are shut down. So let's take the money from over here, put it in a way that's value creating. And they were super flexible. And they said, you know, we could not have got through the pandemic without this win-win flexible, collaborative, innovative mindset that Vested brings. You know, Kate, you bring to mind, I've often told people that the greatest aha moments I had throughout COVID was in the very early days of COVID, when people were just trying to figure out how did we get our workers safely into the facility? And now we're not making heavy equipment, but can we switch over to making medical equipment or ventilators and things like that. And if you take that notion of how flexible people were internal to their organizations and expand that across to their suppliers in key areas, that the power there is just obvious. Yeah. And what you saw is this with these rigid contracts, these transactional contracts, well, you're going to get stuck with this. And everybody's jockeying because they thought they were going to lose at the expense of the others. Well, you know what? We lend together, we lose together. 
And so knowing that you're not going to win at my expense, but we're both losing together or both winning together totally changes the mindset and, and how you actually work. And that's why it's a business model, because we're changing the mechanisms of how we work. Well, Kate, that truly is revolutionary. And I think that I, for one, almost fell out of my chair when you had the word flexibility and contract in the same utterance. And there's just so much need to get away from this notion of trying to write the perfect contract because it doesn't exist. What might be perfect in one instance is sure to be anything but perfect in the next instance, as we've learned these last couple of years. But hey, just as you've been traveling the world over uh, much of this the last past 20 years, as we've described, doing the research, the consulting, the writing. Uh, and uh, again, we associate you with vested outsourcing and, and that great work. I think you've been up to some other things as well. Maybe give us a, a hint as to what else you've been working on and what we can expect to see in the future. Well, you know, I kind of think of it as almost a starfish, you know, so you've got the head. So if you've got you know, this highly collaborative win-win, you know, what's in it for we mindset, it keeps growing legs. You know, so our first book was Vested Outsourcing. And then, you know, people go, as you said, Ted, you know, oh, that won't work. That's just theory. So we wrote a book with case studies, Vested How P&G, McDonald's and Microsoft. It's like, OK, so let's work on case studies, which, by the way, we continue to work on. I've got five more case studies coming out this year. And so I will never stop that because telling the success stories of companies is amazing. But one of our books then became strategic sourcing in the new economy because, you know, we had procurement people go, well, that's what the operations want. But we're at procurement and we have policies and we can't do that. So we wrote a book called Strategic Sourcing in the New Economy and why we need to move into more flexible ways of working with our strategic suppliers. And we created something called Sourcing Business Model Theory which has now been endorsed by the Sourcing Industry Group, the Navy Dutch Association for Purchasing Management. That book's adopted by 40 universities today. And so then we teamed with Oliver Hart on a Harvard Business Review article around flexible contracts, the concept of incomplete contracts. So he had heard about our work and we said, hey, let's you know write an HBR article. You're an economist, a Nobel Prize winning economist. We've got an attorney and you know me, this wacky you know business professor. And so that's where we really started to think about our work on formal relational contracts. And that led to our last book. So, you know, we keep growing these little legs on our starfish. And the one I have now that I'm really, it's going to take me a couple of years to get this out, but we're just starting to work on it. We put a lot of work already, but to get a book out on it is around preventive contracting practices. So the clauses that we use how we interact in our governance role in our contract, that flexibility. So pulling in some of those more preventive conflict resolution things like using a standing neutral. Um, so I'm working on a survey now with CPR, which is a big organization that does dispute resolution about how we can become more preventive. So that's definitely one of the next things. We're collaborating on how you can take the concepts and bring them in government organizations because many organizations say, oh, we're government. You can't do it. And I'm going, you realize, you know, who funded our research. And by the way, the Canadian government has four vested deals. So, yes, it can be done. So we're really trying to push the concept that this can be apply in government as well. So when people ask me that, what's new? And I'm like, 20 more years of the same thing. It's just growing more legs and getting those legs to be anchored so that people 
realize that what we teach isn't just this ivory tower research, but it's real practical applied methodology that when you put it into practice is amazing. Kate, I'll tell you what, it's been a joy for me to have known you all these years and to see what you've been able to do. I know the journey continues. Uh, I've been sitting here smiling when you're saying all the things you've got going on because I knew that you're not sitting still ever. We appreciate so much having you join us here today and let folks know a bit about what you're doing and what Vested is all about. We would encourage anyone who's interested in talking to Kate to get in touch with her. She is well available on various types of social media. Worst case, you can contact us at gsci at utk.edu and we will make sure Kate gets the message. Thomas, that's all I've got for today. You got anything else? No, I'd just like to thank Kate again for joining us and maybe offer her uh, an opportunity to send us off here. Perfect. Yes, I would love to have any of our listeners join us for our executive education courses. And so we have three free online courses and upcoming every fall and, and uh, spring. So January 30th, we kick off our vested exec ed course, followed by our collaborative contracting so please come and learn. Open up our mind and learn about new ways and what real companies are doing. Because we're not just teaching theory. We're bringing the practice to our exec ed classes so that organizations can put these concepts into practice. And I'll make a big, bold prediction to wrap us up is that if you do come to Knoxville for one of Kate's executive education sessions, we will not have a hard freeze. How about that? <laughs> Very good. Well, hey, speaking of those big, bold predictions, I'm going to start keeping score uh, starting now on how well we hold up. But uh, one thing for sure, uh, those, those companies that do take uh, Kate up on the notion of vested are going to weather whatever storms, whatever chaos we face. So, hey, with that, why don't we go ahead and sign off for uh, this edition? Again, thanks, everyone, for joining us. As Ted pointed out, you can reach us at gsci at utk.edu. Uh, until next time. Thanks for listening to Tennessee on Supply Chain Management. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe via your favorite listening platform, such as iTunes or Spotify. And if you have questions, we'd love to hear from our listeners. Leave a reply in our show notes at gscipodcast.com or email your questions to gsci at utk.edu. Join us next time in our pursuit to prove that supply chain management is more fun than you think. Are you a supply chain professional looking to build up your leadership skills in a flexible online format? Join the Supply Chain Management Leadership Academy from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. This 14-week program is ideally suited for developing professionals from every functional area of the supply chain into better business leaders addressing the challenges facing our industry every day. The next session begins on February 1st. To enroll or find out more information about the SCM Leadership Academy and UT's other top-ranked graduate and professional programs, visit supplychainmanagement.utk.edu today.